Coming up on this week's show, we are off to summer camp with YA author Elsie Rosen. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 251 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Will Knaus. Hello, everyone. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Candlewick Press, publisher of The Mermaid, The Witch, and The Sea, the new YA fantasy novel by Maggie Takuda Hall. Are you ready for a book that features pirates, mermaids, witchcraft, Japanese-inspired cultural and folkloric themes, and best of all, two strong queer BIPOC protagonists? In a world that's divided by colonialism and threaded with magic, a desperate orphan turned pirate and a rebellious imperial lady find a connection on the high seas. The pirate Florian, born Flora, has always done whatever it takes to survive, including sailing under false flag on the dove as a marauder, thief, and worse. Lady Evelyn Hasegawa, a highborn imperial daughter, is on board as well, accompanied by her own casket. But Evelyn's one-way voyage to an arranged marriage in the floating islands is interrupted when the captain and crew show their true colors and enslave their wealthy passengers. Both Florian and Evelyn have lived their lives by the rules and whims of others. But when they fall in love, they decide to take fate into their own hands no matter the cost. Maggie Takuda Hall's sweeping fantasy debut, full of stolen memories, illicit mermaid's blood, double agents, and haunting mythical creatures conjures an extraordinary cast of characters and the unforgettable story of a couple striving to stay together in the face of myriad forces wishing to control their identities and destinies. In a roundup of books for this summer, NPR said, Queer, diverse pirate romance with mermaids and magic is pretty much everything you could want from a summer read in 2020. It is full of violence and double crosses and kissing. It's an imaginative and adventurous debut. It's definitely a book to add to the TBR. The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Takuda Hall and published by Candlewick Press is available now wherever books are sold. Hello, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad you could join us for another episode of the show. As we mentioned last week, we are fast approaching a milestone. To commemorate our upcoming fifth anniversary, we are going to be asking you, our loyal and amazingly well-read listeners, to let us know about your favorite episodes from the last five years. Now, whether you've just discovered us or you've been listening since the very beginning, we want to know what you feel are the most unforgettable moments in Big Gate Fiction podcast history. Now, five years and over 250 episodes is a lot to consider when narrowing down your favorites. Here's how you're going to do it. Simply go to the submission form at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash favorites. There, you'll find a link to the list of everyone we've ever had on the show. Pick your favorite and let us know. The most popular interviews will make return appearances in special episodes leading up to our anniversary in November. Guys, we've never done anything like this, and we're really excited to see what you consider to be the greatest hits from the last five years. But to do this, we need you to vote. So go to the submission page at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash favorites and let us know. And thanks to everybody who has filled out the form so far. We've been keeping track, and we're very excited to see what you guys are putting in there. So if you haven't done it yet, please go tell us who your favorites are. So this past week, we watched, I think, what everybody's been watching on Netflix, because I feel like everybody's talked about The Old Guard. It's a really cool action-adventure kind of thriller with Charlize Theron, who leads a band of immortals who secretly work to protect humanity and are now 
being hunted because someone wants the secret to their immortality. This thing was so super smart. I mean, I really thought I was just going to watch some, you know, fun, fluffy action film. And there are certainly elements of that in this movie, but it's also got some really smart stuff going on in it. And I fell tremendously in love with the gay couple in the group. Joe and Nikki have been together literally forever. Uh, They became a couple back during the Inquisition when they were actually on opposite sides of that. Some of their stuff in the movie is truly heartwarming in the middle of all the chaos that's going on around them. If you haven't checked this out yet, give it a go. It is exactly the action-adventure movie you kind of need for this summer. It's action, it's heart, it's entertaining. And all I could say is Netflix better cough up a sequel or a series or there's going to be some rebellion. <laughs> yes, please. More. I want more. I agree 100%. And also, I have another listener recommendation for you. As I mentioned last week, we've got a post on our Patreon page that I will again put into the show notes so that you could talk to us there, whether you're a patron or not. And it's been really great hearing what some folks are reading this summer. And Katie actually gave us a few suggestions. She's been on a bit of a YA bend, recommending Ziggy Stardust and Me by James Brandon, which of course is also a favorite uh, of Lisa's from the novel approach. She's talked about that on this show before. Uh, And another one from Katie is Been Here All Along by Sandy Hall, which she recommends highly both of those books. And then she actually called out Will for this book, Hemingway's Notebook by Jackie North, which is part of her Love Across Time series. Katie's read all the books in this series, and they're all great, but in particular, Hemingway's Notebook was one of the very sweetest. And she called Will out for this because each of these books are great forced proximity stories, and Katie knows how much you love those. Forced proximity? What? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, now you've got something for your TBR as well. So we're here in the last week of July. We've been celebrating Christmas in July all month long. This week, we are releasing our book club episode for the month. Our selection, in keeping with our theme, was Mr. Frosty Pants by Letta Blake. So you can look for that in your podcatchers this week to hear everything that we had to say about that delightful book. And of course, Will's been reading Christmas all month long. What have you got for our final week? I've got three terrific books that are sure to put you in the Christmas spirit. The first one I want to talk about is Three Dates of Christmas by K.C. Byrne. Dean is a manager at a local pharmacy, and he isn't exactly a Grinch per se, but the holidays are not his favorite time of year. That is until Tony walks into his store one day. He definitely catches Dean's eye, and when they get to talking, Tony learns of his displeasure of the season and decides that if he gives them a chance... It'll only take him three dates to wish Dean the merriest of Christmases. So, just like the title says, they do, in fact, go on three different dates. The first one is to a local historical site, a pioneer village that is tastefully decked out for the holidays. Tony is, like, slowly walking Dean towards festiveness. So, it's sort of like low-key Christmas. (laughs) Don't overwhelm me with the Christmas. Yeah, so it's really charming and really lovely. And they start to get to know each other during these different activities. He also takes them ice skating downtown. And in between all of these dates, they're also spending time together, including a particularly hot Netflix and chill session. For the final date, Tony takes Dean to his family's house for the Feast of Seven Fishes. So far, Dean has managed to endure the seasonal festivities, but when it comes to hardcore family time, he's having a lot of problems. 
As we learn, Dean grew up in foster care, had a very difficult time. And as a result of his childhood, he doesn't feel like he needs anyone and he can't depend on anyone, which is why he's sort of a man in and unto himself. But because this is a Christmas romance, Tony helps Dean realize that they'll be stronger and happier together. The next book I want to quickly recommend is Temporary Santa by Dev Bentham. Finn is a baker who has a very successful patisserie, and he takes his pastries very seriously, which is why he's pissed off when he learns that his ex-fiancé and current business partner has hired a singing Santa to deliver cakes to his various customers. That is, until that particular Santa walks into the shop, the incredibly handsome and charismatic singer-actor Andy. Andy is immediately drawn to Finn's no-nonsense demeanor and quickly makes it his mission to find out what his deal is. (laughs) What was really interesting about this particular story is that it's a relatively short novella. So that means when it comes to the romance itself, it happens pretty quickly. Once Andy has broken down some of Finn's walls, they realize that they're perfect for one another. But what was different is, is that each of them have their own lives and career goals. Finn is busy dealing with his ex, who is trying to broker a big business deal, which will take his shops into a national chain. Andy, on the other hand, has dreams of Broadway and actually has a shot at a national tour. So at one point, when our two heroes find their happiness, they're actually pulled in opposite directions by their career goals and actually spend some time apart. But it's during that time that they realize what they really want. Finn finding a way to work around this terrible deal that his ex has made, and Andy, who realizes that life on the road ain't all it's cracked up to be, they eventually find their way back to one another. It's really sweet, and I liked it an awful lot. Last but not least, I want to recommend Everyday Hero by E.J. Russell. Adam is new to the Phoenix area. He has moved there just a few days before Christmas, and he finds an unwelcome gift in his master bedroom. There's a scorpion, and he freaks out. So he calls an exterminator, but because of the time of year, everyone is booked, except for Garrett, the hunky exterminator who comes to lend a helping holiday hand. Adam and Garrett are immediately attracted to one another, and once Garrett has taken care of the scorpion and a rattlesnake that's made its home in his garage... We are never, ever living in Phoenix. I'll just put that out there right now. (laughs) Yeah, there are quite a few critters in this particular book. But despite all of that, our heroes find happiness. And on the surface, they may seem like opposites, but they do find that they have a shared love for superhero geek culture and meatball subs. What's really sweet is that these two are essentially in a case of insta-love, but they're struggling with how much they're willing to admit so quickly. And they end up doing nice things for one another behind each other's backs. (laughs) It's really adorable and very charming. It's essentially a case of nice guys being nice. And you know that is what I love. So I highly recommend these three books. Everyday Hero by E.J. Russell. Temporary Santa by Dev Bentham. And Three Dates of Christmas by Casey Byrne. I think it's safe to say overall you had a very successful Christmas in July. I did. I really enjoyed myself. And I even considered <laughs> I even considered extending this theme for the rest of the year because it's made me so very happy. But the problem is is that there are other books coming down the pike. <laughs> and I'm going to want to read them. So I'll be reviewing those in the coming weeks. But rest assured, 
Christmas Stories will be back in November and December. Fantastic. And I'm going to whip us right back around to summer and talk about going to summer camp. It's been such an amazing summer for YA reading this year. And Elsie Rosen's camp struck all the right notes for me with a very compelling rom-com-esque tale featuring a very queer and very diverse cast of characters spending a month at a summer camp for LGBTQ plus teens. Randy's returned to camp, and this is his third time to be here, except this time he wants to be known as Dell, or short for Randall. He's had a crush on this boy Hudson for a couple years now, and he is determined to get his shot with Hudson this year. And with that, he has the intention of being more than just Hudson's hookup. Randy has shed his theater kid persona over the last few months, and even though he really wants to be in the summer production of Bye Bye Birdie, he has chosen instead to become sporty since the crew that Hudson hangs out with does all of the sporty activities like the obstacle course and whatnot during their time at camp. Now, if you just said to yourself that becoming someone else just to win the guy is a terrible idea, you would in fact be right. Randy's friends are quick to point out the myriad of ways that this can go terribly wrong. But Dell charges forward with his plan and his friends, because they are in fact his friends, kind of go along with this. Even Hudson's best friend Brad goes along because he recognizes Randy and questions what's going on, but he lets Randy go about his business. Hudson, however, doesn't catch on to what's gone on. He thinks Dell is someone new because Hudson doesn't really pay attention to the theater kids, so he kind of missed Randy in the past. What unfolds in this is YA rom-com gold, as Randy works to keep up appearances and even along the way discovering that there just might be a sporty kid sitting inside of his theater lover. It's an interesting, nice reverse from like the high school musical scenario that we've seen where the jock discovers his love of musicals. In this case, it's the musical kid discovering his love of perhaps some things on the sporty side. Now, along the way, Dell shows parts of Randy to Hudson just to get Hudson used to his alter ego because he knows eventually he's going to have to come clean about all this. Things don't always go well, and sometimes they actually go pretty badly. But Elsie wraps it all up in this wonderful rom-com package that it's brilliantly great to read with equal part of love and some groans and some tears and all the other feels you want from a YA romance. At the same time, it's injected with a reality that is true for a lot of camp kids, I think, because in some cases they only get to be their authentic selves and maybe even get to try out different types of labels and identities while they're at the safety of camp. Now, the other campers that Elsie populates in this book are also incredible. There's George, who is Randy's best friend, who's always there for Randy, but also doesn't pull punches when he thinks that Randy is messing up. But he's also there to help pick up the pieces, too, in those moments when things don't go right. The romance that sparks between Brad and George is a wonderful addition to the story that Elsie manages to give us just enough about so we have a good idea of what happens between those two. And it's another great story for queer teens to see because Brad and George sit at different parts of the spectrum than Hudson and Randy do. But Elsie does this without overshadowing our main couple, too. And that production of Bye Bye Birdie that I mentioned, I would give anything to see this. And I really (laughs) hope that queer camps actually do productions of this sort to allow teens to try out and play any role they want. 
the casting, the rehearsals, and ultimately the performance are some of my favorite parts of this book as these kids figure out how to do some wildly intricate choreography, embrace fluidity in these characters. It's really magical. And as you'll hear me talk about with Elsie in the interview, I really hope as this movie comes to HBO Max, if they don't get clearance to do this with Bye Bye Birdie, I really hope they get permission of some musical to do it in this very gender fluid way because it's just wonderful. And with the performance itself, it's wonderful to see how the show impacts really everybody at the camp from the actors that are in it to even Randy and Hudson. It's really a pivotal part of the book. Beyond the fun of the camp experience, the book delves into some very real things that teens and especially queer teens deal with. There's the labels that we put on ourselves along with those that society puts on us what it means to not be able to express your true self in some cases, and the importance of having friends, or if you'd prefer to look at it as found family, those are important people to have in your life where you can be your true self, even if it's a little discreetly. This is my first Elsie Rosen work, and I look forward to reading much more. I've got his first book, Jack of Hearts, on my TBR, and it's actually been there for a while, and I definitely need to move it up now that I've talked to him a little bit about that book as well. So if you're looking for a great summertime read, I highly recommend a trip to Elsie Rosen's camp. And I just want to mention that this audiobook is available through Libro.fm, which is where you can purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. With Libro.fm, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as that large audiobook company, but you'll be supporting a local bookstore of your choice. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app, Listeners of Big Gay Fiction Podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Simply go to biggayfictionpodcast.com slash librofm. That's L-I-B-R-O-F-M for all the details. Now, we've just thrown an awful lot of book recommendations your way, but don't worry, we got you covered. If you're interested in learning more about the books or, frankly, anything else that we've discussed in this week's show, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 251 at biggayfictionpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Jay from the LGBTQ romance review blog, Joyfully Jay. At Joyfully Jay, we review tons of LGBTQ romance, as well as romantic fiction and nonfiction. We review ebooks, audiobooks, and even the occasional movie. We typically review about 18 books a week, so Joyfully Jay is a great place to hear about new releases, catch up on books you may have missed, and find some new favorites. In addition to our reviews, each weekday, we host an author as our first post of the day. This gives readers a chance to learn more about new releases, get exclusive excerpts, find out about the author, and participate in great giveaways. Each author post on Joyfully J is exclusive, so you get access to book and author information you can't find other places. At Joyfully J, we love LGBTQ romance and are excited to share it with you. Stop by the blog at joyfullyj.com. You can also visit us on our Facebook group, The Joyful Jays. We'd love to have you join us. I had such a wonderful time talking to Elsie Rosen about camp, why he wrote this book, why he thinks it's an important story for teens, and what he also tries to do with his YA work uh, made for such a wonderful conversation, and I'm delighted to bring it to you right now. Lev, welcome to the podcast. It is so wonderful to have you here. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. This is a deep honor. This is everything. <laughs> <laughs> so 
right before we got into the interview, I reviewed camp. So everybody's heard about this wonderful book from my point of view, which I love so much. It's really the perfect summertime read for obvious reasons. But tell everybody in your own words what this book is about. So camp is a romantic, a YA romantic comedy that takes place at a queer summer camp. And it follows Randy, who's been going to this queer summer camp for four years. And he's a theater kid, he wears nail polish, he's got uh, unicorn sheets, and he loves every summer there. And he also loves, for every summer there, Hudson Aronson Lim. But he has loved Hudson from afar, because while Randy loves participating in the theater every summer, Hudson is a jockier guy. He is mask for mask, which if you don't know what that means, essentially he considers himself straight acting, that's in quotes, and is only interested in other straight acting guys. And Randy is distinctly not that, but he is a theater kid. So this year he has a plan. He has remade himself as Dell, the ultimate mask fantasy and he is going to win Hudson's heart and then gradually reveal to him who he actually is once they're in love. This is, of course, a terrible, terrible idea, and it does not go quite how he thinks it will. <laughs> yeah, from the very beginning, the adult in me is going, this is terrible. This is going to be so, <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Why are you doing this? But we'll talk more about that as we kind of go through. What inspired this story for you? Well, the original inspiration actually is I really wanted to do like a Rock Hudson Doris Day book. You know, those old 60s sex comedies, Battle of the Sexes, sort of like where she's a feminist and he wants to prove that like she really just wants to find a man. So he dresses up as like he, even though, you know, he's a playboy, he pretends to be a nerd to win her heart, but he falls in love with her while he's doing it. And then she finds out and then this and that and that. And this idea of like playing with gender conceptions and pretending to be different sort of versions of your gender. I wanted to bring that to a contemporary queer YA setting. And part of that is because, you know, we as queer people, even though we've been around forever and we've always had stories, those stories often didn't get to get told. And so to me, the, the 60s sex comedy is a very sort of distinct point in time genre-wise, even though we have screwball comedies now, romantic comedies now, they're not the same. It's not, doesn't play with the same ideas. And I wanted to sort of reach back and take that historical genre and do something modern with it. Because, you know, if I'm going to tell a queer story, I want to sort of be invading straight spaces a little. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's interesting how you categorize it, because I'll admit I, that didn't click in my brain when I read it. And yet hearing you say it, it makes total sense. And to set it in the queer camp as you have, not only are, are Randy slash Dell and Hudson kind of playing with those, but you've got everybody else around them at the same time, mm-hmm. all having their own, however they're expressing themselves and in this environment, not having to restrict that at all. 
Yeah, I knew that if I wanted to be able to have these queer kids having conversations about this and playing with these ideas of mask and femme and what's expected and what's uh, desirable, I knew if I was going to have these queer kids doing that, it had to be in a queer space. Because otherwise, if you're in a straight space and you're playing with this stuff, people around you, straight people around you, are not going to understand it as much. They're going to find it sort of off-putting, they're going to wonder what's going, they're not, or they're just not going to be able to engage in the same way. Like, in the book, there are these sort of history lessons that they have to attend at the queer camp, and one of the ones that they go to, they talk about the Mattachine Society a lot, and the Daughters of Bilitis, and I've been fascinated with them forever because they're this pre-Stonewall queer rights organization, and their whole thing was that if we just act like everyone else, aside from being queer, they will accept us. Like we have to show everyone we're just like everyone else. I mean, these people are responsible for the first gay protest outside the White House and no one really talks about them that much because this protest was about them wearing suits and dresses for the ladies and sunglasses to hide their identities because they had to like show everyone they were just like everybody else. And I think that that idea of how much do we like, how much do we perform what the patriarchy wants us to perform versus how much do we let ourselves be whoever we want to be and maybe who we want to be is something that the patriarchy wants or maybe it isn't or maybe it goes back and forth but that's a conversation that queer people have been having for for decades centuries even mm -hmm. and it feel and i wanted teens, queer teens, to be aware that that conversation, that sort of feeling of wondering, like, you know, how much is too much? Shouldn't I try to fit in? What is fitting in? That they are feeling when they come out is something that all queer people have been feeling for as long as there have been queer people, essentially. And I wanted to link them to that sense of the history of queerness, too. So that's another reason to put it in this queer space. And I absolutely love that you integrated the history into the into this book. So I, it's, I think, important for the younger generation to not just pick up on some of the broader strokes of history that just are easier to get at, like Stonewall and things like that, but the Mattachine Society too, which is mm -hmm. you know very much a part of history that sometimes doesn't get always brought up. Yeah, no, I didn't learn about it until I took a queer history class in college. And like, to me, that should be something that's taught in high school, same as Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And I like too how you had the counselors being, you know, very forthcoming with some of these kids they were talking to about, you're not necessarily going to be able to be this way when you leave here, depending mm -hmm. on where you are. Um, yeah. It's a sad message that we're still that way, but it's an important one nonetheless. We're getting close to spoiler territory here, but yeah, I mean, essentially, it was important to me that it not just be like this happy, simple ending of rainbows and little like floaty hearts and stuff. Like that's, if they have this queer utopic space, this space where they get to play with their identity and be whoever they want to be and figure out what and who they are essentially, that that space is not the world at large. And it's interesting because originally my editors were like, this ending is, is too depressing. It 
feels like this is about a story about accepting yourself and loving yourself. And I'm like, well, it is, but it's more nuanced than that because it's also for kids and kids have to stay safe. Like if, you know, accepting yourself and like being out and proud means your dad's gonna beat you, don't do that. Like I am much yeah. more concerned with that kid's safety than I am with that kid being essentially like an amazing poster boy for being queer. Like they can love themselves and know who they are on the inside and protect themselves too. And I think that that sort of code switching is something that all queer people do all the time anyway. And we all learn to do it. I mean, I, you know, my parents are perfectly accepting, but to say that I behave the same way around them as I do around my queer friends would be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Is this camp based on a real place? I know of drama camps that had, have, you know, have vibes of this from what I know of them, but is this a real utopia place that we could send uh, our teenagers to? <laughs> So the physical space is very influenced by the conservative Jewish camp I went to in my youth, um, where I experienced most of my homophobia growing up, actually. But the actual utopic, when I wanted to write this, I came up with this idea of the queer camp. And I was like, is that too out there? And I researched it. And actually, there are many queer summer camps for teenagers all around the country. Sadly, not this summer. <laughs> But there's, let's see, there's Camp Brave Trails and Camp Lightbulb, just to name a few. And there are even more specialized, like I think there are camps exclusively for trans kids. And the only real difference is that most of these camps are one or two weeks as opposed to the four weeks in the book. So that was, and I didn't actually research a lot of them because I knew what I wanted my camp to be so I, cr I created it from scratch but what's really fun is since then I have got a chance to sort of talk to these camp directors and hopefully I, I'll be talking to some kids soon too where they're doing sort of virtual camps and uh, they've been very like we're so thrilled to see this <laughs> like we're so thrilled to see someone acknowledge us and and you know, put us out there so that queer kids know we exist. But yeah, if you have a queer kid, then you should send them to a queer summer camp if they want to go. I would have, oh man, that would have been so great. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Right? <laughs> so we talked about the nuances that you've got in this book. And the thing that surprised me and that I was so happy to see is that you know, there's, Dell, you know, putting up this facade of who he wants to be for Hudson. And yet through that, he finds out so much more about himself. And I'll continue to try and avoid spoiler territory here, but he discovers that he kind of likes some stuff that he didn't expect to like. Yeah, that was important for me to show because I feel like when you come out as a teenager, you become the gay kid. You know what I mean? You suddenly... You're the queer kid. And whereas your straight peers get to sort of play with identity and they get to try stuff on and take the bits and pieces of them that they want. So, you know, maybe they're sort of a jock, maybe they're sort of a band geek, maybe they're sort of goth, whatever. They become the goth kid, the band geek kid, etc. If you're queer, you're always the queer kid. Like maybe people will think of you as like the queer goth kid, which is what I was. But... <laughs> generally you're just sort of the queer kid. That's how people think of you. But within this queer space, 
where everyone's queer, that no longer becomes a factor. And suddenly you get to try on identities the way that your straight peers do. And so when Randy does that, when he essentially puts on this identity, he gets to learn stuff about himself from doing it. And all the various other characters get to sort of watch him learn. And also, you know, Hudson gets to put on, Hudson sort of is always putting on a character too, but Hudson gets to put on other characteristics. Brad gets to play. They all get to sort of experiment with their identity as it doesn't relate to their queerness as well as how it does relate to their queerness. And that lets them sort of figure out more about who they are and who they want to be. It made me wonder a little bit as you were talking about that the straight kids, you know, can can dabble and maybe be the jock who also might be a little goth. It might be a little this and they just keep pulling it all in. It's like, you know, I think Randy thought he he had to be and was the theater kid. And now trying to fall in love with Hudson, he finds these other pieces. Do you think it's harder for the queer kids to piece together multiple identities like that, where they could be the theater kid who likes sports or, you know, the craft kid who also likes this other thing? I think so, because whatever they're doing, whatever they're, they're sort of showing to the world, especially, like, it, it's different with, like, close friends or something. Obviously, the close friends sort of understand your complexities. But within sort of the strata of high school, within the ecosystem <laughs> of high school, I think that you're always sort of going to be, no matter what you do, no matter how you behave, if you're queer, you still sort of get that thrown onto you. So if it's like, I'm queer, but I like sports, it, it becomes, but I like sports. I just said it right there, as opposed to I'm queer, I like sports. It becomes, oh, well, your queer identity is supposed to mean this like little box, according to all us straight people who don't really know you. And sports doesn't usually go in that box. And no matter how many other labels you put on, they're always just sort of accessories to the central label of queer. Mm -hmm. What do you hope readers take away from the story? You know, I hope, especially teenagers, because that's obviously who I'm thinking of when I'm writing YA, I really hope they take away this idea that A, they're part of a community. They're part of a greater community that is having these conversations all the time. And they are not alone in trying to sort of figure out who they are in relation to their queerness and not in relation to their queerness. And then I hope, you know, the big message I always hope people take away from my YA is essentially there's no wrong way to be queer. And in Jack of Hearts, it was about you know, how straight people will tell you there's a right way to be queer and try to make you into that and you should ignore them because they don't know what they're doing and they're just psycho bullies. And here it's more about the way that the queer community polices itself. And what I wanted to say was, you know, if another queer person is telling you you're not this enough, you're not that enough, you're not uh, butch enough, you're not white enough even, then that's not the real queer community, that person is a schmuck and you should ignore them and find the real sort of, your real friends in the queer community. I don't want to say that's not really the queer community because queer community has a lot to deal with internally. But I think that that usually comes from this place of sort of 
the patriarchy. I always, mm -hmm. I always say gay is a gift. You know, I think that when we come out or to ourselves, not necessarily to the world at large, but when we realize that we're queer, we're given this opportunity to sort of be like, oh, I don't conform to what the patriarchy wants from me. I am not of that world. That means I get to sort of step outside it entirely and start hammering on it from the outside. But I think that some people, instead of doing that, instead of embracing that gift, become very scared and they become, oh, all right, well, if I don't conform to the patriarchy in this way, then that's my one way and I have to conform in every other way. And that to me is essentially turning down a gift. It's turning down one of the greatest opportunities of your life. And that's really what I want queer kids to come away with. It's just that by, by acknowledging your queerness, by being out, you get to embrace that identity and you know defy whatever anyone wants you to be. So the musical theater geek in me, we, we have to discuss the, the musical and the book just a little bit. So you oh, picked no, Bye Bye Birdie. Yes, I did. <laughs> and, and let's just start with the basic idea of why Bye Bye Birdie amongst the, the canon of musical theater. It has to do with the song, You've Gotta Be Sincere. <laughs> so in the movie, which, you know, I watched many times growing up and I've seen by my, my, I come from a musical theater family and my parents are big musical theater people. But in the movie of Bye Bye Birdie, there's that song, You've Gotta Be Sincere, which is when Birdie, who's like this Conway Twitty Elvis figure, is in the town square and he starts singing and he like strums his guitar and all his fan club girls faint immediately because he's just so sexy. And then the, this, the song is about him dancing around and singing to people while these people, while the women faint in the background. But as it goes on, the men start fainting as well. And that to me, especially as a young queer person, was always really interesting. <laughs> I was always like, oh, the men are fainting. And like, and I especially in the 1960s movie too. Yeah, and like you can tell it's not necessarily supposed to be this like, like they don't make a thing out of it and it seems to be more of a choreography thing than a, his sexuality is so intense that even these men are attracted to him. Like they're not playing with that. They're not making it explicit. But it was one of those details that as a young queer person, it really spoke to me and it felt really important in a way I couldn't vocalize at the time. And yeah, since then I've always, always, I directed musicals and college, but I didn't direct Bye Bye Birdie, but I really wanted to do essentially a version of Bye Bye Birdie with David Bowie as Birdie. Like that was always my idea, this sort of non-binary, genderqueer, bisexual, pansexual Birdie figure to me. And the Birdie fan club wasn't, you know, all girls. To me, that always felt the most natural way to do it. Like, if Birdie's thing is that he is so sexy that he makes everyone just faint with the music, then it should apply to everyone. And, and that was essentially the beginning of why, of, of the production in this book of Bye Bye Birdie, which I would totally direct. And then the other aspect, of course, is that since I was playing with these 
1960s rom-coms and Doris Day, I wanted it to be a 1960s kind of show. And I wanted to have a reason to get a lot of 1960s music in there and stuff. So that was, that was the other big driving force. I so badly want to see this version of the musical. I was totally like very into those scenes in rehearsal and the little snippet of like, you know, final performance that we kind of get a hint at. How did, as you plotted the book, I mean, how did you decide who was going to get cast in the musical and what role? It seems like you had this extra layer as you were just, you know, creating your, your story and your cast and your plot. Now you've got to cast this musical with everybody as well. I worked backwards, honestly. Like I knew I had my three sort of main characters and I knew Randy wasn't going to be in the musical this year and Ashley was going to be my techie. So then I just had George and I knew George wanted to be Kim, but wasn't going to get Kim. So immediately the question becomes, who gets Kim? And the obvious answer is like this redheaded twink. <laughs> and so that's where Montgomery came from because he was sort of antagonistic and like kind of bitchy and exactly the person you don't want to lose a role to. So bam, there's Montgomery. I wanted a non-binary birdie. So that's where Jordan comes from. Obviously for, for Rosie, you wanted a, I wanted a Latinx character to be able to play that. And I feel like Afro-Latinx people are usually, for some reason, sort of kept out of playing Latinx roles in musical theater. So I, I went with an Afro-Latinx character. And once I knew that she was going to be playing Rosie, you know, everything sort of fell into place. There are the other, those are really the the sort of, those are the characters in who have roles in the show who are also characters. Like there are sort of like Jen plays Albert and Albert's like the main role, but we don't really talk to Jen very much in the book. Yeah, but Montgomery certainly has a, a good role in the book outside of the play. Yeah. Which I enjoyed every time uh, Montgomery <laughs> showed up. <laughs> Once I figured out like that there was going to be this redheaded twink who got Kim when George wanted it, I was like, who is this? And immediately, like, the, like the, the character description is essentially redheaded twink from LA who refers to himself as that bitch all the time. And like, that was it. That's all I needed to go from there. So this is a, <clears throat> so this is a good segue question into talking about Camp the Movie, which has been optioned by HBO Max. Mm -hmm. uh, are, 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 do you have any idea if they're gonna try and get license clearance for Birdie? Uh, I am not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> it's quite all right. It's really wonderful to see another queer YA tale coming to the screen. These stories are cropping up more and more now, which is incredible. Great to see HBO Max taking it after some of the great queer content they've already been having on that channel. I'm in love with the fact that Kit Williamson is writing it. Yeah, uh, he's amazing. We are big fans of Eastsiders on this show. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's funny. I hadn't seen Eastsiders until he, the producer, Dan Jenks, who did Milk and did American Beauty, he approached me essentially with Kit already in, attached. He was like, this is what I want. Here, who's gonna, here's who I want to write it. And I hadn't seen Eastsiders and we, we talked on the phone and then I like there was, I had like a weekend and I watched 
all of East Siders in one weekend. And I remember thinking like first season, I was like, this is kind of dark for my like sweet wire. But the second season, I think it's in the threesome montage when the guy goes, oh, I feel really close to you. So I feel like I can tell you I killed a man. I was like, yes, he can write whatever he wants. I am <laughs> fine with this. I am on board. <laughs> so that was, I'm really happy that they came to me and I, because I hadn't watched it before because I was like, I don't know, that sounds like a California show. <laughs> and I'm a New York boy, born and raised. I have to admit, when I first heard Kit with the text, I'm like, hmm, to a YA story. And then I read the book, I'm like, I totally get it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and we've had some amazing conversations about what the book's trying to do. And yeah, no, he's, he's such a great choice. And Dan, the producer, is just so on top of everything and has such a smart vision for it and like where he was going to pitch it and how he was going to do it and bring a kid on. It's just been a real pleasure to work with both of them and hear about what they're like, just, I, I say work with as though I'm like participating, but really it's sort of like watching and like they listen to me, don't get me wrong, but like it's, it's a weird place but they've made it so easy and fun, which is not how I hear a lot of these go. So it's been amazing. I'm looking forward to see them bring this very queer story to Yeah, that's what's really exciting to me. That the queer producer, queer screenwriter, based on a book by a queer author. And I, I believe they're searching for a queer director. Like, yeah, I, to me, this would be a truly fantastic thing to have on the screen because it's also, because it, it, it's a, it's a very queer story that's not trying to talk to straight people necessarily, which isn't to say straight people wouldn't enjoy reading this book. I think straight people should absolutely read this book, watch the movie, whatever. But I think that it's about sort of the queer world and straight people who do read the book to, this is like a gift to you. You get to sort of look and see some of what we deal with and how we think on a regular basis. I don't know if if there are stories that feel catered to queer people in film that much about queer teenagers. Now, you don't just write YA books. We talked a little bit about Jack of Hearts and about Camp, of course, but you also have a couple books for adults and a couple books for middle graders as well. So yeah. you're really kind of spreading the gambit and they all don't have queer characters at the forefront either. Yeah, no, my YA really has the sort of queer characters at the forefront and, but are, there are always queer characters in my books. Each and every one, including the middle grades has a queer character somewhere in it who is not just sort of a passerby, but has something to do with the main story. And you know, it's funny because when I first started writing my first book, All Men of Genius, which is a also a romantic comedy, sort of a, a steampunk sex comedy <laughs> based on the importance of being earnest and Twelfth Night. Wow. Um, yeah, no, there are a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going into that. It's a long book too, but there's a lot of stuff going into that pot. And, you know, I remember when I first wrote it, which is a while ago now, um, don't want to date myself, but it was a while ago. 
and there is a there's a secondary queer character and it's a rotating perspective so we get a lot of stuff from his point of view and then we get his love story and i remember even though it's it's adult it is very much a ya crossover it's about a girl trying to get in essentially a freshman in college so it's got that crossover age thing going on but i remember reviews that were like it's really pushing the envelope there's a gay character oh my goodness and i remember because of that i really felt like i couldn't embrace the idea of like a central gay male character for a while and jack of hearts i did not expect to sell at all that was a weird situation it was this jack of hearts really came out of a place of rage in many ways. I really felt like I was seeing a lot of books about young queer men in which there was just one type of gay man over and over and over again. We had one story and that story was to be adorable and romantic and like just sort of like pine over a guy and get the guy. And I felt like there are all these queer teenagers out there looking for themselves and this is the only story that they're seeing this is what they're seeing in the books like that they have to be this like gentle like sweet kind of chaste fellow and i was like what about the slutty ones like they're allowed <laughs> to be slutty where are my slutty gay teens at and so i wrote this book essentially about a bad kid who's also queer and he's not even bad exactly i mean he smokes he uh, sleeps with a bunch of different guys. He's no interest in a relationship, but he's not a bad guy. He's like a really good guy underneath it all. And I wanted to write a story about this slutty, like queer kid be essentially being forced by someone to become the character in the books that I was seeing out there and how that's something that straight people are constantly trying to do to us as queer people is tell us the right way to be queer. And so I wrote this, and obviously there are significantly more types of queer stories now, and part of that was just my own sort of tunnel vision and seeing the things that made me angry more than the things that made me happy. That, that moment of being able to be like, yeah, you're allowed to write this slutty gay kid. Let's go for it. Let's have some fun. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to tell my queer stories. And that's been great. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about your writing origin story a little bit how did you become a writer what got you enthused to tell story i i'm one of those people who's like always been doing it and like there's no fixed point that i can remember i i remember vaguely like i i read so much as a kid and i read everything and then i just started writing because it made sense and because like you know I wanted to tell a story about this thing I wasn't seeing. And so I wrote, and I remember I wrote a lot of fantasy as a kid. My sixth grade teacher, when she gave out creative writing assignments, she like specifically forbade me from writing fantasy. So I wrote what was essentially urban fantasy. <laughs> and she was kind of annoyed about it. But like when I graduated from eighth grade, I went to a very small experimental private school for K through eight. There were 18 kids in my graduating class. 
And when I graduate, when we graduated, you know, the, the teacher got up and like said something nice about each student and gave them a little gift. And mine was, he's a wizard with words. And I was given by the sixth grade teacher, I was given a little wizard statue, which I still have. Uh, and so I guess I'd just always been writing. There was never any question that I was really going to do much else. I went to Oberlin because they have one of the best undergraduate creative writing courses, majors in the country. And I, then I, I got my MFA. Like that, that was always what I was going to do. It was destiny. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're doing it, which is terrific because not everybody yeah. gets to, to do that destiny. Yeah, no, it's exciting. And I'm very lucky in that regard as well. What's a recent book that you've read that you would recommend to everybody? I just finished Heartbreak Boys by Simon James Green. He wrote Noah Could Never with a banana on the cover. And I really loved it. It's about these two boys, these two queer boys. And one of them is like very, they used to be friends. But then one of them came out and the other was still in the closet and was like afraid essentially of being seen the same way. And so they just sort of broke off contact. And since then, one has been secretly dating someone and is about to come out at prom. And the other has been dating someone and he's out and proud. And then at prom, it very publicly comes out that their respective boyfriends have been cheating on them with each other. And they, the respective boyfriends immediately get together and have this joint couple Instagram account where they show their summer vacation and it's so perfect. And so as a sort of form of vengeance for one of them and an attempt to win his love back for the other, they decide to do a road trip Instagram account together as well. And along the way, discover many things about themselves and their relationship. <laughs> well, that sounds awesome. It's very, very good, yeah. Add that to my TBR. Yeah. So what's coming up next for you? Well, nothing has been announced. And I don't like talking about stuff that hasn't been announced. I think it's bad luck. But I'm working on young adult and adult stuff. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say, because I'm mysterious. (laughs) Mystery is good. So how can people keep up with you online to see all the announcements as they come out? Oh, yeah. On Twitter, I'm Lev A.C. Rosen, L-E-V-A-C-R-O-S-E-N. And I'm also that on Instagram, where you'll mostly see photos of my cats. Cat, singular. That's really the best place for it, honestly. I have a website, levacrosen.com. But best place to keep up with me is just Twitter. I'm not even on it that much. I'm not I mean, not a giant fan of social media, as I imagine most people aren't. But when I announce stuff, it's on there. You know, I have to say, going back to camp ever so quickly before we wrap up, it's one of the things I love that you did to the kids was take their phones away. Oh, God, that was such a joy. (laughs) And remove social media from any discussion or anything they could do. Yeah, it really no. kind of leveled the playing field there, and I loved it. Oh, my God. It was so much fun when I realized I could do that. When I was like, oh, man, if he starts looking himself, if he, like, you know, the, if he looks up Randy on social media, then he's going to – and I was like, wait a second. They're at a camp. Maybe there is no social – oh, my God. I felt like a god. <laughs> <laughs> 
I felt so powerful. But it's funny because Jack of Hearts, you know, there's all this texting back and forth and social media stuff. And I had fun writing that too. But for some reason, for camp, I was like so thrilled to take away their social media. Yeah, everybody needs their social media detox, even if it's at camp. <laughs> <laughs> Lev, it's been so great talking to you. Wish you much continued success with camp. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a real delight. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Lev for coming to talk to us about camp. I can't wait to see what HBO Max does with this movie. And especially in the hands of Kit Williamson, I think it's going to end up and be something magical. Kit knows how to write queer characters, and I can't wait to see how he adapts what Lev has created with camp. Definitely looking forward to that. Okay, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Now, coming up next in episode 252, we are going to have the very first of what we're going to call our listener favorites episode in preparation for our fifth anniversary. And you know what, folks? You're going to have to come next week to find out what that is, because we're just going to keep that a secret. And there is still time for you to let us know what your favorites have been. Just go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com slash favorites and let us know. Perhaps your pick will become one of our listener favorite anniversary episodes. And one last reminder, this week, the Big Gay Fiction Book Club episode for July releases, and we'll be talking about Lena Blake's Mr. Frosty Pants. It's a really good romance. You're not going to want to miss that. Okay, guys, remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.